since we were talking about false teaching a little bit last week, I started thinking, what would the book of Revelation sound like? What would these letters to these seven churches be like if they were written instead of coming from Christ through the Apostle John? What would they sound like if they were written by some of these celebrity prophet prophets? These people that are out teaching this false doctrine of prosperity, that all that God wants for you is that you would be healthy and happy all throughout your days. What would it sound like coming from this perspective? I think it'd probably start like this. To the church at Smyrna, from the one who is blessed and highly favored. I know about you. I know that life is good. I hear about all the blessings that God is just pouring out on you over and over and over, that he's rewarding your people with jobs and with bank accounts that are overflowing, that he is rewarding you with all the things that your heart could possibly desire. And you know why? Because you believe. Because you know that God is going to give to his children anything that they ask. That if you just ask it of the Lord, then he will provide for you. And you've taken hold of those promises. You've taken hold of those blessings. And you are claiming them in the name of Jesus. You're putting in all that you have so that you can receive out even more. So that your life will be full and blessed the way that you want it to be. And the way that you deserve it to be. But I've heard that there may be some of you that are suffering. Some that are sick some that are enduring financial hardship, some that are going through mental, physical, and spiritual pain. And to those of you, I say, you need to believe harder. Believe that God can and is able to take you out of the mire and out of the clay and put you up on solid ground where you need to be so that you can experience his full favor. Just continue believing more, giving more, and striving more because you can't outgive God. And so you give and he will return. You sow and he'll plant And your life will be the way that it was meant to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you do, to the one who conquers, every day will be a Friday. That's not who wrote this book. And that's not the truth. That's not the experience for the church at large, and especially for the church in Smyrna. In the church... Of Smyrna, there are people that are suffering in a wide variety of ways. And this letter is coming to them in part to give them comfort, but more than anything, to teach them to endure in the midst of that suffering. And for most of us, if not always, at least at some points in our lives, it is really difficult to endure through suffering. And we all experience it in various degrees and various stages of our lives. We all go through things that are incredibly difficult. And a lot of times in those situations, our prayer life looks like, God, just make this stop. God, just rescue me out of this. Get me out of this. I know you have the power to do it. And so just deliver it from, deliver me from it. And then if it doesn't happen, we start to ask a couple dangerous questions. Am I not good enough? Is it me? Am I doing something wrong that's causing this suffering and this pain and this hardship in my life? Maybe I don't believe enough. Maybe I'm not a good enough Christian the way that I'm supposed to be. Maybe if I just do more and pour more into it, then God will take this away and start to bless me the way that he's supposed to. Or we start asking the question, is this God any good at all? I couldn't do anything possibly more. And so why am I still going through this? Is this a God worthy of following in the least. 
But the letter to the church at Smyrna teaches us to suffer well, to learn to endure hardships for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel, and to do so not expecting to be delivered here and now, but to know that we have a life to come that is far greater than anything we could imagine here and now. And so we're going to look at this letter to the church at Smyrna and partner with them in their suffering and their tribulation and their difficulty share with them in the challenge that comes from Jesus, and then be reminded that if we have put our faith in Christ, then we may suffer here and now. That we may even experience death for the sake of Christ, but we have a promise of a life everlasting and an inheritance beyond our wildest imagination. And so let's look at that letter in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, it's a hard word today that we're thanking you for. And as we're asking you to bless the reading of your word, God, remind us that our understanding of what it means to be blessed is not always correct. So Father, tell us, help us, teach us to be people that see suffering and hardship, and difficulty in our life through the lens of the gospel. Knowing that it will hurt. Knowing that it will bring sorrow and sadness and all those things that are perfectly normal here and now. But also, God, remind us that we can have joy in all circumstances, even in the midst of hurting. Even in the midst of sorrow and sadness and pain, that you are still our joy. And that in those times, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. But also, God, remind us of the promise of the gospel and help us to put our lives and the time spent in joy and in pain, in triumph and in tragedy, help us to put all of those things in perspective, not based on the length that we experience them, but to put them in perspective with the magnitude of eternity and the promise that you've given to all those who follow after you, for all those who have put their faith in you. So God, help us to be challenged by the church in Smyrna. And God, help us to be motivated by your commandments to that church and to all other followers of Christ who continue in the footsteps of the church at Smyrna, loving you at all costs, serving you through all things, and finding our hope and our joy in the gospel of Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Empathy 
is a powerful word and a powerful thing. Empathy has the ability to connect people in a way that almost nothing else can do. Because empathy is not just feeling something for someone. It's not just trying our best to relate to other people. But when we can truly feel empathetic with someone, it's because not only do we know the circumstances that they're going through, whether good or bad, not only do we know what they're experiencing, but we know to a certain degree how they're experiencing because we've been through those same things and we felt some of those same emotions. And it's a powerful bond that can be shared between people that have a shared experience and a shared reaction to that experience because they're able to look at each other and say, I get it. I understand what you're going through. I understand what you're feeling and we can walk through this together. But the word empathy is not usually a word linked to deity. If you look at gods and, and mythology all throughout the history of the world and all around the world today, when you look at these pagan deities, usually they're off somewhere like Mount Olympus, off on a hill, off in the distance, leading a life that is very different from the people that worshiped them. And so you'd have these stories about these gods who were transcendent, who were beyond the human experience and couldn't relate to the people, and the people couldn't relate to their gods. And as Jesus begins the letter to the church at Smyrna here, it feels a little like that. He says unto the angel of the church at Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. And this is just a reminder of this picture that we've already seen of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. As John takes that veil and pulls it back and reveals Jesus for who he truly is, the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, the one who is in the very nature God, the one who was in the beginning with God and the one who is God. And Jesus is constantly referring to himself with that kind of language. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. I am the first and the last. There's nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me. And so we start to get this picture of the scope of Jesus and just how big and amazing and awesome he is. That everything that exists was created through Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus that he is preeminent, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he is the first and the last, that he is different than us, that he's not just humanity 2.0, but he is the sovereign, holy creator, not just of the universe, but of time and space itself. And so I imagine to the church at Smyrna, as it should be to the church of redeeming grace here now, as we read those words, we think, whoa, we think those words that we just sang, that he is holy, 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 filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, because that's how big and transcendent and beyond us that Jesus really is. But he doesn't stop there. He says the words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. As I've already mentioned, this letter is going to a church that is suffering. A church going through incredible, difficult things. And if you've ever been through a season of suffering, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, or everything in between, if you've ever experienced that time, you also might have felt very alone during those seasons. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that right now. 
Because suffering breeds separation on a couple different levels. On one hand, if we're the ones experiencing the suffering, then it's easy to look around and say, you know what? Maybe there's some people in my life who mean well. Maybe they want to help to the best of their ability, but they don't know. They don't know what I'm going through. They don't know what I'm feeling. They don't know what I'm experiencing. And how could they possibly know they're not going through what I'm going through? And so why would I share this with someone who doesn't know what's going on? Or maybe it's not even that cold. Maybe it's why would I want to burden somebody with this mess that they can't connect with and they don't understand? I'm just going to deal with it on my own. But then also from the outside, there's this temptation to look at people that are suffering and say, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like. I've never been through that before. I can't possibly fathom what they're dealing with or what they're experiencing. And so I don't have any words to say here. I don't have anything that I know how to do to help in this situation. And so I'm just going to take a step back and maybe somebody who is better prepared for this will step in and these difficult circumstances, this suffering and this pain starts to be even deeper because it breeds isolation. But the church at Smyrna is not alone. Because as Jesus identifies himself here as the one who died, we're reminded that yes, Jesus is the preeminent King of kings and Lord of lords and the creator of all things. But Jesus is also the one who was born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law who grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with men, all on a collision course for a Roman cross, who suffered all of these things on the behalf of his people. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the first and the last, but I'm also the one who died. And because of that, I am a partner with you in your tribulation. I'm not just your savior. I am a savior who suffered for you. And he looks at this church and he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And that phrase, I know, rings a little bit differently this week than it did last week to the church in Ephesus. Because if you're here last week, Jesus begins that letter by saying, I know your works. I know the things that you're doing, which is awesome and amazing. And we talked about how beautiful it is that Jesus knows what we do and that Jesus cares about the things that we do for his glory and the things that we do for other people. And so Jesus looks at Ephesus and says, I am aware of the things that you're doing. But he looks at the church at Smyrna and he says, I know your tribulation." I know your poverty. I know your slander. I know these things on a personal, intimate, empathetic basis because I've endured those things as well. Because the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is our high priest, but he's not a high priest off in a tower or a temple somewhere. He is a high priest who is familiar with our sufferings, that he has endured all the things that we have and more. And too often we read the Bible as an alien text that it descended from some spiritual version of a Mount Olympus off in the distance somewhere, and this alien God sends it down to us and reveals himself to us. And we take scripture and we read it and we say, yeah, that's good. I like things here. There are really beautiful things inside of scripture. I like God. He seems really good. But I'm not God. I'm not the first and the last 
And so how could I possibly aspire to be like Jesus? How could I possibly aspire to know and relate to this kind of God? And on the other side, how could that God possibly have any clue or understanding what I'm dealing with? But Jesus reminds us here that he doesn't simply know our tribulation mentally. He's not simply aware of our suffering and our difficult circumstances and even the slander that we endure from other people. But Jesus says, I know those things intimately because I have experienced them as well and I experienced them for you. And we see that in the passion of Christ as he goes into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And from that moment on, even though he's already had a ministry and a career of people coming against him, and calling him all kinds of names and making accusations against him, now he goes into Jerusalem to endure slander. People calling him all kinds of things. People mocking him at points, spitting at him and tearing his clothes and gambling for them, enduring shame on the cross, enduring physical suffering and pain in a way that most of us can't even possibly understand or imagine. And he did all of that so that he could save us but also so that he would become intimately aware of our suffering and our pain. All through the book of Revelation, and we sang this in that song, he's referred to as the lamb who was slain, the one who died, the firstborn of the dead. And so he writes this letter to the church at Smyrna saying, lift up your heads. I know what you're dealing with. I know what you're enduring. I am so aware of your pain and your suffering and the difficulty that you're enduring. But also remember that I'm the one writing this, that I'm the one who died and yet I live, the one who rose from the dead. And we're reminded here that yes, Jesus has suffered in every way that we have, but his tribulation couldn't overcome him. The pain that Jesus experienced couldn't bring him down. Not even death could defeat Christ. Jesus is the one who conquers all of these things. And so he says to the church at Smyrna and every follower of Christ who reads this letter, remember, not only am I the one who knows your suffering, but I'm the one who is conquering your pain and your sorrow and your brokenness and even death itself. It's a letter from the one who knows suffering to his people and has the power to overcome for them. And so he looks at the people of Smyrna and all the followers of Christ and he says, you can be comforted in this. I'm your king. I'm your savior. I'm your high priest. I know what you're enduring and I am walking with you as a partner through your suffering. But even still, it's hard to wrap our minds around that especially because of some of the things that Jesus taught. And I wonder what it must have felt like to be there as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he starts going through the Beatitudes, saying things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Because remember, Jesus wasn't going into these incredible urban epicenters with all the people who are influential and rich and wise and powerful. Jesus is going throughout the countryside and he's preaching these sermons to people who had very little perceived social value. 
They didn't have any financial wealth or stability. They were working from, from paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, whatever the terminology was. I'm sure they had something for that back then. From shekel to shekel. I don't know. We'll go with that. And so they were dealing with the hardships and the reality of common life. And they were broken and in need. And now here's this guy saying, no, no, no. You might think it's a blessed life to be like those people of great power and wealth and responsibility. But actually, you are the ones who is blessed. And they could look and say, no, the meek are not the ones that inherit the earth. Look around. It's the powerful. It's the ones that have all of the weight and all the authority. They're clearly the ones that are inheriting the earth. But Jesus is constantly changing that narrative. But I feel like the church at Smyrna must have felt the same way. Because there's a little parenthetical statement here in verse 9 that almost feels rude on first reading. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I'd like to imagine as that letter is being read to the church that maybe a few people ran up and grabbed the scroll and unrolled it like when it's your birthday and you get a card from your great aunt and they start shaking it, right? Because Jesus is saying we're rich. And so there's probably a check or whatever the ancient form of a check might be. I didn't do a lot of the background research on ancient monetary stuff this morning. And so it's fine. Just roll with me here. And so they start shaking the scroll, looking, saying, surely God is going to give us something because in case he's missed this, we're not rich, We have nothing. And so why is Jesus telling us this? This is a church that's in a desperate situation. He says that I know your tribulation and your poverty and your slander. Those are not the three things that most people are aiming for in their lives. And if those three things were happening, if you were going through tribulation, hard, difficult circumstances, and poverty, where you have nothing, no material, spiritual, anything to rest on, And then slander, that they were dealing with hardships, they had no money, they had nothing, and then these people around them that were supposed to be religious were slandering them and putting them down. That doesn't feel very rich. They're impoverished in every way, and yet Jesus says, no, no, you're rich. But this is the upside-down economy of the kingdom. This is the truth that all we have and all we need is Christ. But that is a phrase that is a phrase of privilege. A lot of times it's really easy to say, all I have and all I need is Jesus when Jesus isn't all we have. When we've got security in the bank account, when life seems to be going well, when we have our health, when we have our jobs, when we have family, when we have the things that feel like they're of great importance, we can rest on all of those things. And then it's really easy to say, yeah, all to Jesus I surrender. Yeah, all I have is Christ. Just give me Christ or else I die. All these beautiful old hymns, we can recite those words saying Jesus is enough. But in reality, we've got all this stuff that we're standing on. And then when those things start to fall away, then all of a sudden those words are a little harder to utter. But the Bible is filled with this upside-down economy. Cries all throughout Scripture saying, God, why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? Cries of prophets saying, look at these other nations around us. They don't love you. They don't worship you. They don't care about you. They don't do anything for you. And yet they're rising up and we're falling away and dying and perishing. Christians looking around saying, God, look at all of these pagan organizations around us. 
Because all these churches are finding themselves in the midst of pagan temples and pagan deities. And usually the city around the churches is doing a lot better than these little churches that are hiding out of fear for their lives because of the gospel. And it's easy to look around saying, why are all these people doing so well when we're suffering so deeply? But then Jesus comes in. He says, no, blessed are the poor because yours is the kingdom of heaven. They might have this kingdom here and now, but this kingdom is passing away. And there is, as St. Augustine said, there are two kingdoms of this world, the city of God and the city of man. And one of those is on its way out as the city of God is growing and expanding. And one day, as we're going to see at the end of this book, Christ is going to come again to make everything right and everything new. And he's going to take his city. He's going to take his kingdom and he's going to drop it in time and space. And all those other kingdoms are going to fall away and kneel and bow. And so Jesus says, no, you are blessed no matter what you have, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Because all we need is Christ. And everything else that we have in the here and now is to be used for his glory. And that's the backwardness of of this so-called prosperity gospel or teaching because the idea of that is, you know what? You need all that you can get here and now and God is a means to get those things. You use God to get the money that you want. You use God to get the car and the stability and the family that you want because right now is what matters. But Jesus walks into that and says, no, 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 no. Everything that you have in the here and now is just temporary and it's passing away because what's coming is so much better. And so keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then anything that you need in the meantime will be added to you. But Christ is enough. And Paul understood this. And so we need to mimic the the attitude and the mentality of Paul who said things like, I know what it's like to have a lot and I know what it's like to have nothing, but I can do all things through Christ because he gives me my strength. Paul writing from a Roman prison saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice and that Christ is going to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. The same Paul who worked for everything that he'd ever obtained in his life and got it all. And then met Jesus and said, none of it means anything. I count it all as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. That's the kind of people that we need to be. And that's what Jesus is reminding the church at Smyrna. He says, yeah, you don't have much. And yes, you're going through some really difficult times. And yes, the people around you are treating you poorly and they're slandering against you. But you are rich, far richer than they are because you have me. And that's all that you need. The church in Smyrna needed to be reminded that they have everything that they need spiritually and they have a promise for riches in Christ that will never pass away. And so Jesus tells them and he tells us, you don't worry about the people out there. Yes, they may be building their own kingdoms. Yes, things may be going well for them right now. Yes, they may look rich, but the reality is they're on a pathway to destruction and you're on a pathway to life. One day, they're going to have to take all their crowns and all the things that they've earned and all the things that they put together, and they're going to lay them on my feet, and they're going to be worthless. But you're going to come with what little you have in your hands, and you're going to put it before me, and I'm going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little bit of stuff, and now come in and take the kingdom. And that same Jesus that makes all other crowns meaningless is going to lay, as we're going to see in a moment, a crown of life on the head of his people. 
And so it's a good reminder for the church at Smyrna. And now we may expect this letter to continue with Jesus saying, you've suffered so much. You've hit the triple threat, tribulation, poverty, slander, and you have been faithful through all of those things. And so now I'm going to give you some Sabbath. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you a season where you can catch your breath and recover because you've been so faithful with your suffering. But verse 10 doesn't go that way. It says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear. Oh, this is three gospel words. Something really good must be coming. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. They've already endured so much. And now they've got to go through more. Jesus says, you've endured all of this and you've endured it well. And I know your tribulation and your suffering and your pain. And so you've gone through all this. And now you got to go through a little more. Now there's a little more to endure. And so then our minds kick in and we start thinking, okay, well, why? There's got to be purpose in the suffering, right? He's preparing them for something. He's going to deliver them out of something in a really mighty and awesome way. And then Jesus gives the why. And he says, some of you are about to be thrown into prison that you may be tested. Which has to be the least satisfactory answer that God could possibly give us on why we're suffering. Because I'm letting you go through this so that you'll know if your faith is real. I'm letting you go through this to know if you can endure hardship for the sake of Christ. And we see that in the book of Job, right? Job was doing everything well. The accusation against Job was, if you take everything away from him, he won't worship you anymore. And Jesus says, fine, let's see if that faith is real. The Christian life is one of endurance, where genuine faith is often revealed through a furnace of tribulation. Because it's easy to be faithful when things are good. It's easy to have faith when things are good. But when we really find out the depths of our faith and if Christ really is enough, is when all these other things start to fall away. And in this, as Jesus is saying, you're about to go through this incredible period of suffering that you have to suffer a little more. He looks at them and he gives them two commandments. He says, do not fear and be faithful unto death. A lot of times it's easy to encourage endurance with just a little more. So I remember, remember the Titans movie? No, wait, no, no, what's the Christian one? Facing the Giants. It's kind of like Remember the Titans, but with a lot of Jesus in there and everything works out nice and neatly in the end. It's a little, eh, it's a little iffy. So I remember there's this one scene where they're on this football field and they're doing these bear crawls, right? Have you seen this? It was, it was, it was viral for a while before viral was really a thing. And this guy's crawling and he thinks he can go 50 yards or whatever. It's a whole deal. And they blindfold him and the coach is up saying, just a little more, just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. And then the guy goes, oh, I can't do any more. He says, look up, son, you're in the end zone. And people are like, oh. It was a really big thing, but that's how we try to encourage endurance, right? Just a little bit more, just a little bit longer, just, just push a little bit more because we can get just this little bit more. And so we can eke out something else. And so we would expect you to say, no, 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 it's just, it's just a little 10 days. It's just a little 10 days and then you're going to be done and then it's going to be fine. So just, just get through this little bit, but he doesn't. 
He says, for 10 days you'll have tribulation. And we know that in the book of Revelation, numbers mean a lot of things. And so he says, for this season, you're going to have tribulation and you need to be faithful unto death. For the church at Smyrna, this might be it. That they are going to suffer for the rest of their lives, however long that is, possibly even in prison, and they will die from their suffering. And I wonder if we have this kind of faith. I wonder how it strikes us, because I know how it strikes me. When Jesus says to be faithful unto death, that's cool if I'm going to live 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and life's going to be pretty good. I'll have some ups. I'll have some downs, some seasons of suffering, some seasons that aren't. Yeah, I can be faithful through that. I can weather short times of difficulty and tragedy and poverty and all these things. I can, win, I can endure those for Christ. But now if you're telling me that my suffering might be from this point on to the rest of my life, that's different. And I think the reality for most of us is, is that's a hard pill to swallow. To the, think of the idea of suffering from this point until we breathe our last and stand in the presence of Christ. But that's our calling. To be willing to do that for the sake of Christ, knowing that we have something better. And if that's not who we are, if that's not the kind of faith that we have, then we need to start training for this kind of endurance. We need to spend time in Scripture knowing the character and the nature of God. We need to be diving into the power of the gospel and to start asking God to teach us through prayer and through church and through being together as the body of Christ that God would teach us to be people who don't think temporally, but think eternally. People who aren't worried so much about the here and now that we forget that we have an eternity to come. We need to ask that God would teach us to be the kind of people who if we were called to suffer and to be faithful unto death, that we would. But I honestly think the first commandment is harder than the second. He says, be faithful unto death. Okay, maybe we can get there. But those first three words that sounded a lot better early on in chapter one when he said them to John. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. How? How in the world? Can we try to prepare ourselves to be people who are willing to be faithful unto death for the sake of the gospel and also to do that without fear? Well, listen to the other side of that commandment. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now we see the trade-off, right? It's not just you suffer for a while because this is the right thing to do or this is the, the integrity-driven thing to do or this is the moral thing to do. You suffer for this time and then at the end of your life you receive the medallion of you did a really good job suffering. This isn't martyrdom for the sake of martyrdom, but Jesus says if you're willing to give all that you have in the here and now for the sake of the gospel, then even if you are faithful unto death, the moment after that I... Jesus will give you the crown of life. And this is an unbalanced trade. Because I think about life, and life feels very long. And the older you get, I feel like the more you start to think about this, this bigness of, of, of life and, and how long we get to be here. And so the idea of suffering for a significant portion of our lives, I mean, that seems like a really long time. And living 70, 80, 90 years, that feels like an eternity but it's not. 
In fact, if we start to look at things through the gospel lens and remember that we're not here for a moment, but that we serve the Jesus who is the first and the last, the one that holds time and space in the palm of his hands, the one that isn't bound by our schedules or our mortality, the one who died and rose again and who has given that promise to anyone who follows after him. And we think on his timeline, eternity makes 70, 80, 90, 100 years seem very, very small. Paul knew it. He said, I count my present sufferings as nothing compared to the promise that I have in Christ Jesus. Because Paul said, you know what? Eternity's really big. And if the trade-off for the Apostle Paul was, I spend the later part of my life suffering for Christ and even dying for Jesus, I'm willing to do that because I know that I have something on the other side of my last breath that is bigger and better and more awesome than anything this life could reward me with could ever be. See, the promise here that Jesus says is is suffer for a moment. Because even those long moments are like a vapor in the wind compared to eternity. And he says, maybe even die. But you'll receive an eternity of life everlasting with me. Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna reminding them that he takes the poor and makes them rich that he takes the oppressed and makes them conquerors, that he takes the dead and he gives them life. And so why should we fear anything that this world could bring against us when we have that kind of Jesus? And this calling isn't just for the church at Smyrna. We need to be the kind of people that learn to endure even to death. Because the reality is, because of where we live and because of the situations most of us find ourselves in, we aren't going to suffer the way that Smyrna suffered, but we may suffer. And just because our suffering doesn't look like other suffering, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean it isn't overwhelming. That doesn't mean it's something that we have to trust and lean fully on Christ to do. And so no matter what our lives look like, whether we have much or little, whether we are healthy or sick, whether we are constantly in difficult circumstances or life seems to go by pretty smoothly, either way, we need to learn to be the kind of Christians who are willing to endure for the gospel unto death and to do it without fear because we have this promise. He says to the one who conquers, the one who endures, the one who answers that commandment to not fear but be faithful unto death. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Because yes, life can hurt. And yes, this life is going to end unless Christ returns in our lifetime to make everything right and everything new. Yes, that is a painful, painful process. But it's not forever. But as we're told in the book of Revelation, there's another death coming those who haven't put their faith in Christ, for those who haven't trusted in Jesus. And that one, that one's forever. But for those who put their faith in Christ, who take on the work of Jesus, who follow after Jesus, he says, you're not going to be hurt by the one that counts. Yes, you'll you'll take what feels like a loss in the here and now, but you are going to be victorious over your suffering. You're going to be victorious over your poverty. You're going to be victorious over the slander of those around you in Christ because Jesus, who won the victory over death and the grave, is coming back to finish what he started. And when he does, he's going to put that victor's crown on your head. He's going to wipe away your tears. He's going to wipe away your pain, your sin, your brokenness, and your suffering are going to be nothing but distant memories. And you are going to be with Christ. Forever. And so, whatever comes in the here and now, we can take it. 
And when we can't, Jesus can. Because another one of those lies is that God won't put things on us that we can't bear. But He absolutely will. And some of those things will kill us. But it's okay. Because there is nothing that Christ can't bear for us. And so to be the kind of people who answer the call of Smyrna, we have to be the kind of people who know the truth of the gospel and know the Jesus who gives it. Because this isn't just a religious ideology off somewhere in the distance, hoping and believing based on nothing that we're going to have this new life in Christ. We have the promise of the one who's already endured it. He's endured the suffering. He's endured the shame. He's endured the slander. He's endured the poverty. He endured death in the grave and conquered all of those things so that we can look to Christ and say, he rose from the dead and he's promised us that he'll do the same for us as well. And so I don't know every situation going on in the room and certainly can't predict what each and every one of us will go through over the course of our lives. But I do know that Jesus knows He knows your tribulation and your poverty and the slander against you. But if you're in Christ, you're rich because Christ is all we have and all we need and he is going to give us far more than we could ever imagine. And so in the midst of your tribulation, hurt and be sad. And lean on Christ and lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ to pick you up and to to bear the weight for you at times. In the midst of your poverty, trust in Jesus and trust in the goodness of, of your neighbors in Christ to help you along the way. In the midst of slander, man, that feels terrible and awful. And so feel the heartbreak and the brokenness of that, but don't let it steal your joy. Don't let it steal the peace that we have knowing that in Christ we are rich beyond our wildest imaginations because he has stored up for us an inheritance, not for a king, but for the king of kings. And he's going to share that with us and lavish that on us, not for a season, not for a generation, not for a millennia, but for all eternity. And we'll get to be participants in that forever. And we have that sealed by not only the one who died and rose again, but the one who is the first and the last. And so let's rest on that truth. Hope in that Jesus and believe that promise. And be the kind of people that endure all things and are faithful unto death.